Second Timothy chapter three. I'll be reading Second Timothy three, verse sixteen through chapter four, verse four. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray. Father, I ask for Your hand, the hand of Your Spirit, to cause me to preach the Word, to teach with all patience the Word. And I ask that You cause our hearts, along with our minds, to see and to love, to be changed and affected by what we see. To the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In our series on the core values of Sovereign Grace Fellowship, this morning we come to core value number three. The Word of God. Remember the flow. According to value number one is God. God's God centeredness which leads to core value number two how then shall we respond as creatures to such a God summed up what we have seen over the previous three weeks is that God upholds and extends his glory in everything which means he brings us who are being saved into the enjoyment of Himself forever. That's the Gospel. To experience God's very joy in God. In other words, say it this way, Christianity at its core is knowing God the way He has revealed Himself But not just that. It is knowing Him and loving Him whom we know. And therefore, a necessary element of loving God, or say it a different way, of worshiping God is loving His Word. 
We cannot separate truth from genuine worship. Our desire for truth is directly connected to our desire for the one true living God who saves in Jesus Christ. We can desire truths in the world, scientific truths, historical truths. We could love the validity of logical connections. We could do all that without loving God. But to the extent that we do not care about truth, that is the extent we do not care about the one true living God. God means to be known and to be admired and loved. Okay. Alright. There you go. That's where we've been. That's the abstract way of saying it. And some of us who are abstract thinkers, like myself, maybe some of you, I, I, I need that. It's really helpful. Very practical to my life. But now let me say the same thing again in a more practical way. The essence of Christianity, daily living, is pursuing our joy and happiness in God in and through the pains, trials, temptations of life. That's Christianity. That's the way Peter unfolded it in his first epistle in chapter 1. God brings you into new life. That's how you become a Christian. God the Father caused you to be born again, producing in you a living hope in the promises of the Gospel, which are future mainly, laid up for you in heaven, imperishable and undefiled. And Peter says, believer, you're one of those people that now rejoices in that even though you cry and have pain and have trials. That's the Christian life. And so then he comes out of all of that saying God does that because He's, he's up to something in your sanctification. He's up to purifying your faith like we do gold. And he says, therefore, the Christian life is this, though you don't see Jesus, but because the Spirit dwells in you, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, you, you believe in Him, and you, in the midst of real life and real pain, are rejoicing. He is an unspeakable, otherworldly type of joy. And you are thus obtaining, as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the Christian life. In other words, life, the Christian life, is a battle. Been around Jesus long enough, you know what it's like. Till one day you're on top of the mountain in your prayer life. And the way it works itself out in, in your life, just everything's easy. The Bible reading is easy. Going to church is easy and thrilling. And prayer is easy. And the next day, it feels like God is 10,000 miles away and your soul is fragmented. You're confused. And you're depressed. 
Here's the question, Christian. What do we do? The answer in the Bible is we go to the Word of God. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my soul. We as believers need reviving constantly in our lives. We need to breathe the Word of God into us like we breathe air. The normal Christian life is a repeated process of restoration and renewal and being revived. Joy in Jesus is not static. Have you noticed that? fluctuates. And Satan's main attack, I think Bob would agree, is to steal your joy in Jesus. To get you to not believe and trust His promises. Paul declares to the Corinthians, we are workers with you for your Joy. Preserving our joy in Jesus is work. It's a fight. It's something that we do purposefully, volitionally, as we do many other things in life that we find important. Like wake up and go to work over I don't feel like it in and of itself. Peter declares in chapter 5 of his first epistle, our adversary the devil prowls about the earth seeking Christians, that's the context, in order to devour them. He is seeking to cause the life experiences to suck the joy of Jesus and of the future promises out of your Life. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that the Holy Spirit has put armor upon us. He says He's given us a shield of faith and He's given us a sword to pull out called the Word of God. And so as our trust, as our joy in the Christian life wavers, the means that God has ordained for us to be revived constantly is this book. It is the Holy Scripture. It is His Word to absorb it, to meditate upon it, and to love the truth while crying out with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Open my eyes, O Lord, that I may behold, see wonderful things from Your Word. Not teach me to read. I can read them, but sometimes my heart is so hard I don't really see it and care or affected by it. Help my heart Behold the beauty that's there. And so let me state again clearly core value number three. 
because we are desperate to have and to maintain an intimate communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as our treasure, as our joy. Because of that, therefore, the Scripture. Therefore, the Word of God is to be central in a believer's life and in the corporate life of the local church. That's what I have to say this morning. I'll now say it numbers of other ways. But one thing I'm not doing this morning is to give an apologetic on why we should believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God as opposed to the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or the Buddhist Scriptures or the Book of Mormon or, or something. That's not my purpose. But instead, my goal comes in two parts. This week and next week. This morning, my goal is this. To set out why the Bible should have supreme authority and be central in the life of a Christian and in the life of the church. Then next week, I'll come back and say, then why don't we... All the churches around the world just gather together on Sunday morning and someone get up and read the Bible for an hour and go home. Why do we do this thing called public explanation through preaching? Why is that central? That's next week. So this morning, here's what I have to say in a nutshell of why the Scripture is to be central in the life of the church. First, because God revealed Himself as the Word of God. And He reveals Himself by and through the Word of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, is because God works in those who are His through and by the Word of God. And thirdly, because the Scripture, the Gospel, the Word of God is the means that God causes people to be born again. And from there, to persevere in faith to the end. Alright, so let's go back to number one then. The Scripture is to be central in the life of the church because God has revealed Himself as the Word and by the Word. First, He's revealed Himself as the Word. And you know where I'm going to go. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. Not the song or the drama skit or nice cartoons above the preacher's head through a PowerPoint but the Word. 
in the Greek, we know the word is the logos. The logos was, is God. The logos, the embodiment of God's understanding. And if you have been following the logic of these core values, say it this way. The omniscience of God. That's the Logos. Personified in God the Son. The embodiment of all of God's reason and logic and everything of the glory of God. See, in the Greek world, the, the philosophers at the core were searching for the Logos. Everything's in fluctuation. Is there something that's not moving and always changing? What is this, this, this ultimate reason and purpose for, for all things? They were searching for the Logos. And John says, God is that Logos. God the Son is that very embodiment of all truth and reason. He is God's omniscience. And then he says in verse 17 of chapter 1 of John, that Logos became a human being. He is the essence of truth of propositional truth, of truth statements. God is this, and thus He is not that, no matter how you feel He might be that. The Logos personified in God the Son means at the very core of Christianity, it is the opposite of relativism. God has revealed Himself as the Word. And God has also revealed Himself by and through the Word. So go back to our main text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He says all Scripture is from God. The word is theonoustai. Two words are put together. You can hear the word God, I hope. Theos, theology. God, theonous, pneuma, or noustai here. Spirit or breath or wind. All Scripture is God breathed out. Outward. Through men. Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, David. This means that God has ordained to speak to us and to interpret His acts in history for us through the minds and the pens of men. Written in particular historical 
times and contexts, through particular languages and circumstances. Paul's clear. What is breathed out by God? All Scripture. That's the Greek word, graphe. All the writings are God breathed. And he's referring to particular writings that we refer to now as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He's saying that through and in these writings, God is superintending them in absolute sovereign control of them, that they say exactly what He wanted them to say. That God is the ultimate source, even though they came through the minds and the pens of men. All Scripture is God-breathed. P- Peter said it this way in Second Peter 1.21, For no prophecy... And he's referring to the Hebrew Scriptures here. For no prophecy was ever produced, meaning here, ultimately here, like, by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the same is true with the Greek New Testament. There's a reason why Jesus chose out of many disciples some to be apostles, particularly personal ambassadors or sent ones, mouthpieces who would be on a par with Moses, Jeremiah, and David as the fullness of the Gospel is now through them revealed to mankind. So when Paul writes to the Romans, what he means by what he writes is the Word of God. Same with Peter. Same with John. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, he gave us the Scripture. And the ultimate goal for God to give us the Scripture is not so that we can come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not so that we can get to the truth and we can debate with those who disagree with us. The ultimate truth is not so we can tell how cults don't get it right. All this is part of a Christian life. But that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal for the Word of God is worship. It is so that we can delight in Him who revealed Himself mercifully to us in Scripture. Just think about it. A little slowly here. He made us in His image. That's why we have a mind, an intellect. That's why we have a will. Our mind is the tool that we see truth with. We see 
who God is in Scripture because He's revealed Himself and we have to have a mind in order to do that. How does He save? Does He save? Who is He? What is mercy? What is wrath? Okay, Our minds are the tool to see the truth. And we have another faculty called the will. Okay, you can say it this way. Your desires, your, your heart, our guts, a little bit distinct from the intellect itself. There's these deep down affections of dislike or like. He's given us both. Our mind is a tool to see the truth and our heart is that faculty in order to love and adore and want the truth that we see with the mind. At the core, foundationally, the Bible is intended to change what we think and what we feel about God and about the world and about sin, and about death, and about salvation, and most centrally, about the historical figure, Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate goal of Scripture. Now, if you can hold that, or just summarize that, the ultimate goal of Scripture is worship. And because that worship is the ultimate goal of Scripture, there is an immediate goal. In other words, there is a means to the end of adoration of God and love for God and dependence on God. And that means to the end involves the intellect, the mind. Why? Because the truth that we're so desperate to see in order to fellowship with God, in order to respond to God, in order to love God, it comes to us in words, in language, marks on pieces of paper. The Bible, of course, means the book. And there are 66 really separate writings in this one thing called the book. Because the truth we need comes in a book. And a book is useless unless you read it. And to read it doesn't just mean to be able to sound out syllables. It means to try to get the mind of the authors, what they meant, through their words into my mind so I can see it. And so reading, by its definition, is an intellectual act. Divine truth is mediated to us through the minds and the pens of men to get at God's truth. His meaning means, first of all, to get at the intended meaning of, just for example, a man we call the Apostle Paul, who wrote a scathing letter to a bunch of churches in a region called Galatia. It's called the book of Galatians. Or his letter to the Romans. Or understanding the particular context 
of Isaiah when he gave a particular prophecy. When was that? What was going on? Or Peter. In other words, the Word of God is only accessible through the particular language conventions of the human authors, their cultural circumstances, their situation in life. When what Paul meant is what we understand him to mean, that is the Word of God. And we all do this. Here's life. When when Joe comes to a conclusion that chapter 3, verse 49 of somewhere in Paul means such and such, but Paul would look at me and say, huh? That's not what I meant at all. You misread me there. Okay, As much as I may believe, that's the Word of God. My understanding there is not the Word of God. The Word of God is on the pages of Scripture. And it doesn't change. And it was delivered there, superintended by the Holy Spirit, through the intention, for instance, of Paul or Peter. Alright, so let's see the picture of the three core values again for a moment before I move on. God's Internal glory is Holy Trinity. Summed up this way. At its core is His understanding and His will. His omniscience, understanding, the intellect, knowing Himself fully as His own object in the Son. And Willingly delighting in what he understands. Okay. Alright? So we were, first of all, therefore, he created in order to emanate that understanding and willing. So he makes creatures called humanity in his own image. With an understanding and with a moral will. And therefore, the purpose of the church is the glory of God spreading through the minds and the willing of His people. That's my understanding of what Jesus means, but those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. You must No truth. And it happens to the apparatus of the mind, a human intellect, or a divine intellect. But not just that. You can only know the truth and never worship Him who is true. Worship is in spirit and in truth. And thus God reveals Himself, His understanding of Himself His glory. And He does it and has done it in words. In words that have been written. The Bible. Which therefore is the main means of communicating to human minds 
so that the content we have now of the truth in our mind, we can respond and rejoice in Him. That's what I think Paul says here in 2 Corinthians. To give the light, God acting, to give the light to see in the mind. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, therefore, if God is to be worshipped and glorified in our midst, then at the heart of the local church must be God's revelation of Himself, which is His Word, which is the Scriptures. That's the first reason why it's central. It's because God's revealed Himself as the Word. And He's revealed Himself not while you sit under a tree and meditate, but through this book. Secondly, the reason the Word is to be prominent in the believer's life and in the life of the church is because God works in us by the book, by the Word of God. Go back to our text. Verse 16, 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That means it really has good effects. He's doing something with it. Profitable for teaching. For reproof. For correction. And for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God brings about these good works He talks about there if you follow the logic of Paul, by the Scripture. Or, or take one of Paul's, I think, in a nutshell, the essence of Christian living. Galatians 5, 6. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision it means anything, but what means everything or counts for everything is faith working itself out in loving others. That's at the core. To walk by faith. But, faith comes and continues to come and is molded and strengthened. How? By hearing. And by hearing. And by hearing the Word of God. Or in this passage here, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says the Word has an effect. It gets into a person and transforms their mind and desires and they're ready for every good work. He says the Scripture is profitable for teaching. Teaching what? What it teaches. Teaching us about God and His ways and salvation. Every one of us if you've been Christian more than a week or two, you know what it's, what it's like down the road to see things differently than you once saw them before because you got instructed by the Scripture. Your assumption got pushed aside. 
And you changed your mind because that's what teaching is doing. And he says it's not only good for teaching, but for reproof. How many times have you who are believers, you're holding unforgiveness, bitterness toward your spouse, or friend, or children, or a church member, and you wake up and because you have some good habits in your life, and so it's it's quiet time or Bible time and prayer time. And as you sat there with the Bible opened for 20 minutes, something started to happen. And you started to pray. I see it. Father, soften my heart. The Word of God was reproving you. Or it's good for correction. We all right now have thoughts about God, about Christianity, about life, about how we shall live, how we shall act, about interpretations of Scripture right at this moment that are wrong. We just don't know where they're at yet. I mean, hope you don't. Because if you do, then we should change immediately. Because, but, but we all have dark spots. And if I live another 30 years or 3 years, there will be some correction about my thinking coming if I continue to open the Bible. But I think, oh, I didn't see that before. And the main means or way God does this is by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, through the Word of God. And this is summed up by Paul as training in righteousness. Or the way the Hebrew writer puts it in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's the See, the reality is that our flesh, meaning our sinful nature, our, our ongoing imperfect perceptions, they time and again lead us into foolish and sinful acts and thoughts. You remember the Hebrew writer earlier, he said, be very careful, believer. Take care lest there be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart. We're all susceptible to that daily when we wake up. And the Word is Jesus's, the great physician's scalpel to cut and to convict and to heal our thoughts and our desires in our intentions. See, when hope feels lost, when depression overwhelms us and our hearts are hardening, where do we Christians go? We go to the Word. 
We go to the Word which will judge us. Thank God. They didn't say condemn you. They said judge. Joe, you're wrong. Your intention was wrong. Oh, thank God for the Word. We go to the Word and not only judges, it clarifies. It enlightens. It fans aflame the fire of our love for such a merciful God. Hope again springs forth when it felt lost. Yesterday, Psalm 119, starting with verse 50. Hear, hear this, what I just said, cry coming by the Spirit through the human heart. This is my comfort in my affliction. Okay, that's not a good thing. Okay, it's, I'm afflicted, but here's my comfort that your promise gives me life. When I think of your ordinances from of old in the Bible, I take comfort, O oh Lord. Or when our, our failures, our sin, the afflictions of life, when they threaten our assurance of salvation, where do we turn to rebuild that assurance? The Apostle John says, go to the Word of Truth. It's his answer. That's how he says it in 1 John 5.13. I write these things, so just look up 5.12 and everything that came before in that letter, okay? It's in your Bible there, so there's Bible. That's written. I write these things to you who believe, to Christians, who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why do you write them, John? Here's His purpose clause. So that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible is our ongoing means of assurance of our salvation. Satan's number one objective is to destroy our faith, our trust in the Word, in His promises. To destroy our joy in Jesus. The weapon we have been given is the sword of the Spirit that is, according to Paul, the Word of God. But if we don't wear it, we can't draw it out for battle. If the Word does not live and abide in our minds and our hearts, our joy, the true joy, the joy in Jesus will be destroyed. But if we pull out the sword, like some of us were at a play last night of Hamlet, he's walking around with a sword all the time. He wore it. We've got to wear the Bible that way daily, meaning feeding upon it. And we pull it out in times of trial, which is every day. 
then we will become stronger in our faith as warriors. That's what I think John says in chapter 2, verse 14 of 1 John. Listen to him. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God doesn't sit on the table by your bed only. The Word of God lives or abides in you. And you have thus overcome the evil one. See, this book in our personal daily lives and in the life of this church is crucial. If you don't believe what the book says in Romans 8.28, for God causes all things to work together for ultimate good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. If you don't believe that or have ever even thought about it before the phone call, when the phone rings, you might abandon the faith. You might find yourself to be proven to have never known Him. Christianity, the life of a believer, is the constantly staying prostrate on the surgical table in order to be cut by the Word of God that heals us. God works by this Word in our lives. And thirdly, the Word is to be prominent because... It is by the Word of God that He saves people. Let me just say it this way. It's by the Word of God He causes new birth. And of those who He caused new birth to, it is by that same Word that He causes them to persevere in faith to the end. The life of the church and true worship and true persevering saving faith all depend on the spiritual miracle of new birth and sanctification by the Word of God. Every human being who has ever come to saving faith. That is, who has ever been born again. It happened, not without, but by means of the Word of God. As I don't say that just from my experience or logic. I say it because it is crystal clear in 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, 
not by means of perishable seed, but by the means of imperishable seed, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. The means of new birth is the Word. Peter says you've been born again. How did that happen? It happened by means of the Word of God. In other words, that's what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 22 to 24, when Paul writes, For Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach words. We preach the Word of God. Summarize this way here. We preach Christ crucified the only way to flee from the wrath of God. And the result is this. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness in the mind of Gentiles. But to those who are called from among both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Think about that. Why is Jesus intimately and personally the power of God here to some? The answer is because God called them. Or say it the way Peter says it. God caused them to be born again. To come alive, but not out of the blue. He did it through the preaching of the Word of God. We've watched this. We can tell stories of ourselves and friends. While the Word was being read by yourself or someone else, while the Word is being discussed, in a home group, or preached, or taught, the Holy Spirit causes persons to recognize and love and desire the truth that they see with their minds. God has ordained to use the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, to bring forth faith. And this means that the life we need in order to have genuine saving faith and genuine worship, it comes by the Word. No Word, no life, and no faith, and no true worship. Not only does God bring about new life to us dead sinners by the Word, but we go on living by God's Word. Every human being is called by God, not effectually, but called 
commanded to be dependent upon the Scripture. Every human being who's ever lived to be dependent upon the one true God's Word. Even Jesus. Know Satan because it is written. No, it is written. No, it's written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus, when He said that, did not mean sitting under a tree until you hear a voice. He meant the Scripture. The Bible births and it sustains life. Because it births and it sustains faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. See, if faith in us sinners is eternally important for our eternal future, which it is, because without faith you cannot be saved in Jesus. And so, if our faith is of eternal importance, then the Word of God, the Bible, is also. And we're talking here about our daily, ongoing walk as believers We're talking about our heart and our disposition toward God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, think about faith, trusting in what God has said, and hope, the future aspect. They're they're almost synonymous in the Bible. Hebrews 11.1 says it this way. Now, faith is... So so here's his definition... Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So, without hope in the future, we can get really discouraged. We can get really overwhelmed and depressed and our joy in God and His promises drains away as if our blood were draining away out of our body and we turned sheet white. Hope is essential to our joy in God. Paul, Paul said it this way in Romans 15:13. May the God of hope... Okay, hear him now, right? Why are you saying that, Paul? He's the God of hope. He's the God of our hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And that's the verb form of your faith. Your activity of trusting in Him. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. 
The Scripture in all of its forms, when I say form, it's only this book, but it comes in different ways through discussion, and you're reading, and you're hearing someone else read, and expository preaching, and teaching. The Scripture is the gas station of the Christian life. I don't care how good your car is, brand new, everything works, all the fluids are up, and you drive it and drive it and drive it, and you start crying one day, it won't work. Well, you need to put more gas into it. You need to go to the life of the car called gasoline. The life of the Christian, the Word of God, or to use the biblical analogy, we maintain our hope through eating. Through feeding on the Word and preaching. Listen to Paul in Romans 15. Verse 4. For whatever was written... Scripture here. Whatever was written... And he means here the Hebrew Scripture, what we call the Old Testament at this point. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, Christian's instruction, that so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, the whole Bible has as its goal to create and to maintain our faith, our hope, and our joy in God. I'm almost done. See, you should know your history if you're a believer. And it, it means starting at the beginning of the Bible, but it doesn't stop in the first century A.D. There's a church history of 2,000 years now. And I think that what I have try, been trying to say, this was at the core of what was the Great Reformation in the 1500s. It was, get back to the Bible. People didn't know the Bible. They couldn't read the Bible. If they went to the church with the Bible that was chained there and tried to read it, most couldn't. Because it was in Latin. And almost nobody read Latin. Unless you're a professor. Or some priest and some monks and university educated people which was less than 1%. No one had the Bible in their language. And at the core was get the Bible into the street language of the people so they can read it and be saved and persevere. And at the core was train the pastors to read the Greek and the Hebrew to be precise with something that is this valuable so that they can unfold it to their people with good biblical exposition. See, the Scripture was the formal principle of the Reformation. The foundational one from which all these other Shackles fell off in superstition and sacramentalism that was blinding people. The Bible. The Bible come preaching is to take the most prominent place in the church. 
in corporate worship because worship is seeing and loving and finding joy in God as He has revealed Himself in the Scripture. The Scripture is the seed that brings about new life with dead sinners. And it is the ongoing food for their souls that maintains and grows their faith in order that they persevere to the end so that they make it to heaven. There's no Word, there's no life, and there's no genuine saving faith. And thus there will be no true Christian works of love. And no genuine worship in the life of the church. So, let me just close and say, let us again resolve not to neglect the Word of God. See, all life, Bob likes to say all life is, what is it, percentages? Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of truth to that. Let me just say it this way. All life is priorities. Some of you will never be late to work. You like your job. Don't want to lose it. It's amazing how you get there. But you'll have a really hard time ever being on time for church. Here's the thing about all of us. Let's, it's okay. We're all sinners and we're broken, but let's not deceive ourselves. So, when it comes to praying and Bible time, it's priority. Yes, but it just doesn't fit. I know. And I'm talking to myself too. Let's not deceive ourselves. It's a priority thing. And then you say, yes, but I've tried to daily get alone with God. And I try to pray and I, I wake up and pray and my mind wanders. And, and it's like, oh, it just feels like it's not doing any good. Uh, okay, I know. And what I want to do, I want to close with some help. First thing is this. Stop waking up and therefore in order to blab to God. But wake up in order to listen. To God. And when you do that, you'll find yourself praying. I'm going to close with George Mueller. Spent his life feeling called by God to build orphanages. And he was struggling with his daily quiet time. Praying half an hour. It's like God feels a million miles away until he's decided, let's flip it around. Take the Word of God first. And so I close with his words. The first thing I did after having asked a few words the Lord's blessing upon His precious Word was to begin to meditate on the Word of God. The result I have found to be almost invariably this, that after a very few minutes, my soul 
has been led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication so that though I did not, as it were, give myself to prayer but to meditation on the Word, yet it turned almost immediately more or less into prayer. Let's pray. Father, cause each and every one of us to not only hear and, and, to, and to feel the excitement welling up within us as we hear Your Word this morning, but implant it deeply within us. That we would prioritize Your Word for our joy's sake and thus for the sake of those who have to live around us and for the sake of those who need to see this joy that is in Christ and to be saved. Do this, Father, we pray. To the glory of Your name in us. To the joy of our hearts. Amen.